Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition of The Intersection. This podcast is being released prior to a one-night-only movie event in theaters nationwide called Is Genesis History? Del Tackett, formerly a focus on the family who developed the Truth Project, offers some insight on the subject matter. Then from the Fellowship of Companies for Christ International, it's Terrence Chapman who shares about his amazing story and offers comments on diversity in the workplace. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Christian comedian Shonda Pierce who has her own one-night-only theatrical event coming up in April. She discusses some of the dark times of her own life and how God has shown his faithfulness to her. And now with Valentine's Day having recently occurred, author Jennifer Slattery offered some insight on her latest novel, which brings a love story injected with Christian truth. In addition on this Intersection podcast, some observations from Jennifer Breeden of the Clarion Project, who recently returned from the Middle East. You'll be hearing some of her comments about how matters related to terrorism are playing in that part of the world. Finally, discussing some action taken so far during the Trump presidency, it's J.C. Derrick of World Magazine and World News Group. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Del Tackett is perhaps best known for his involvement in the Truth Project for Focus on the Family. Well, this noted Christian apologist is part of a new one-night-only theatrical event called Is Genesis History, coming to theaters on February 23rd. With some comments relative to elements of the narrative present within the first book of the Bible, this is Del Tackett. I think, first of all, and most importantly, I wanted to help uh, the evangelical Christians recognize that uh, if they want and desire to hold uh, to the historical reading of Genesis, uh, that they don't have to feel like there is some conflict uh, with science. Uh, they don't have to feel like they're, you know, they're ignorant or stupid, as sometimes as uh, they're being accused of. But there is uh, really great scientific uh, evidence that supports uh, the historicity of Genesis, and there are some very, very uh, smart and, and credible professional scientists uh, who are doing that work uh, in the field. And that's what we wanted them to see. Well, tell me about how you began to to build this content for the, for the presentation as Genesis History. Obviously, it's based on the Bible, but t- tell me about some of the people that came alongside of you to really put this together. Well, really, the the credit has to go with uh, uh, Thomas Purifoy, who is the director. He's head of uh, Compass Cinema in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, He's the one who called me uh, several years ago uh, to talk about his uh, idea of doing something like this. And so he and his crew really uh, deserve a great amount of credit uh, for uh, arranging these (laughs) trips we took everywhere. Uh, I mean, Mount St. Helens, we were in the Grand Canyon, we were scuba diving in St. Thomas. Uh, I mean, we were, we were everywhere. And um, so they, they really put together all the trips and uh, made all the arrangements with the, with the scientists. And it was, a, it was a fascinating two years. Well, and of course, we see in this time in which we live, and I know that you've observed this, obviously, from your background, where people that hold to a view of Scripture that is, you know, we take the Scriptures literally, we develop a Christian worldview perspective. Unfortunately, those of us that do that sometimes are, well, we encounter some opposition, some pushback. People will will look at Christians and say, well, you know, 
we can't possibly, you know, how can you possibly believe this? Well, look at the scientific evidence and such. And so there's this tendency to actually separate science and the Bible or science and faith. And something that I've said for quite some time is when you look at the evidence, science and faith or science in the Bible are much more compatible than quite a few people believe. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, in fact, uh, if you just look at the uh, the amount of history that God has given to us in, in the Bible, uh, for years many people scoffed at a number of the notions associated with the, the historical uh, events in, in the Scripture. Uh, you know, were the Jews really uh, slaves in Egypt? Did they really migrate? Uh, out of there was there really a King David? I mean, all of these things, and and every all of those uh, have now been substantiated by archaeological evidence. So uh, the scripture is continually uh, proven and being proved over and over again that it gets its history right. And uh, now the question that's before us uh, is the is the first part of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, is that true history, or as some would, would like to do, uh, do we interpret it more as poetry or simile or analogy or mythical? And um, our, what we want to do is to tell people that the clear reading of Genesis 1 through 11 is historical narrative, and, and, uh, and the scientific, we believe the scientific data uh, supports that reading. Dale Tackett here on The Intersection. Learn more about the film by going to the website isgenesishistory.com. The Intersection continues now with former corporate executive Terrence Chapman, president and CEO of the Fellowship of Companies for Christ International and author of the book, Do Your Children Believe? Becoming Intentional About Your Family's Faith and Spiritual Legacy. In our recent conversation, he discussed how the workplace can provide an opportunity for improved race relations. Here now is Terrence Chapman. The spiritual foundation, uh, which we may call core values, that's within us, our belief system. Uh, our core values be determine our belief system, and our belief system starts to impact our thoughts, our behaviors, the lens in which we view life, and the, and the lens in which we make decisions on. Uh, that begin to, to shape our convictions. And so uh, my convictions, if you will, are based on spiritual truths. Uh, and those spiritual truths, in this case, is shaped in 66 books called the Bible. Mm. Uh, that is the standard in which uh, you know my values have come from. Uh, do I live uh, in that way? I, I'm trying to model Christ-like behavior, but I fail every day. And the good news is, I there's a cross to go back to to remind me through a life of repentance uh, when I do fall short and I understand forgiveness. And so. Uh, my core values are shaped by these 66 books, uh, by God's truth and God's word. And as a result of that, I have a standard to go by. Uh, even when I fall short of that standard, I understand the standard. Uh, and so that's, um, that helps uh, uh, shape my thoughts, my behavior, uh, and, and my, my actions, uh, and my love for others. One of the things, for example, in that, he tells us first to love him and love other people. Uh, you know, hate the sin, but also love the sinner. Uh, he gives us example after example after example. 
uh, how to reconcile relationships. It's about relationships, first relationships with the Father, then relationships with one another. Well, and I, I pulled up this poll. It's from Pew Research, and uh, basically examining some of the trends in America, one of them uh, with respect to race, where at this point you've got a the difference between adults saying race relations are generally good versus those saying that relations are generally bad. As of May 2016, you've got the uh, the response of generally bad actually outweighing the adults saying that race relations in America are generally good. How can Christians in the workplace contribute to an improvement in race relations there in the uh, the workplace environment? You know, we can use race uh, to be divisive, or we can use it to be unified. And so first we have to be unified in the spirit. Our, you know, when we deal with this issue, it's a heart issue. Uh, Sometimes we make it an emotional issue, but what it really is is a heart issue. Uh, I remember in growing up in Chicago, one of the most segregated cities in the country. Most people think Alabama and the South were segregated. The only place that Martin Luther King was not allowed to complete his march was Chicago, Illinois. And I grew up in a time where, as we integrated schools and did different things, uh, it was a challenging period. But love conquers many faults. Uh, and so we learn a life and we live a life of forgiveness. Uh, at the cross and so daily and so we have to practice that but I, I i still say that the solution is do not let race be a divisive mechanism uh let's deal with the heart on the issue and understand the core underneath that that might be broken and if we seek that type of reconciliation truly uh, then we'll begin to see people for who they are and and we'll begin to engage in people in a way to get to know them we can have disagreements. Uh, we don't have to agree on everything. We, we have, I think culture is healthy. Uh, a diversity in culture is healthy. We don't have to all be the same. We don't have to all think the same. Uh, I think it's healthy if we simply welcome those diverse thoughts and, and, and collaborative thinking and, and deal with those different issues from time to time. And so what we're looking for is not necessarily unification in uh, the color of our skin, so to speak, but we're looking for the unification in the spirit of, of, of what's taking place, and the spirit, in our case, in the corporate environment. And if that spirit is pointing towards the mission that has been laid out by that organization uh, and, and understanding the core values that drive that, uh, the decision process, in that mission. I think we have a healthy organization. Terrence Chapman here on The Intersection. Learn more about FCCI at the website, FCCI.org. The book website is doyourchildrenbelieve.com. Well, visiting with me recently in advance of an appearance in Montgomery, Alabama, was Christian comedian Shonda Pierce. She was featured in the film Shonda Pierce, Laughing in the Dark, and will be in the movie Shonda Pierce Enough in theaters one night only on April 25th. In our conversation, she discussed some of her life story, as well as God's faithfulness to her, even in the dark times of her own life. Here now is Shonda Pierce. I struggled with depression years ago, and when we started making the doc, I had written a book called Laughing in the Dark about that very journey, journal, journey, <laughs> I can get the word out, 
and how I really have found some hope and some healing, even in dark places in my life. And um, and so the book was well received. And when we made the movie, there was just not a better title than what that what we had already learned or what I had already learned about facing tough situations. And so we went with that title. And um, and it's it's interesting when we started making the movie Laughing in the Dark, we we did it because. I got this award as the most awarded female comic in history. And even wow. when the guy gave me the gave me the award, he was like, I said, I just find this hard to believe. He goes, me too, because we did the math twice. We ain't never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> and so oh we decided, well, we need to make a documentary on how someone, you know, goes and becomes a best-selling comic and never worked in a comedy club, you know? And so... That's kind of the movie we started out making. And then personal tragedy just hit my life like a like a tornado. And, and I lost my my mother and my husband all within the making of the movie. And we decided to just go ahead and let folks watch the, the trail of walking through dark times. And what do you do with that? And how do you hang on to to truth and reality when, when life is so dark and, and you're struggling. And what it came out was a, just a true love story on, on the goodness of God, even in the midst when your prayers don't get answered the way you want them to get answered. And so it was very well received. And so now the new movie is somewhat of a follow-up to just let people know that, man, you can, you can survive, not just survive, you can thrive and, and love again and believe again and trust again and, and make it again. And, you know, not, not to um, toot my own horn or anything like that. That, that is why events like what's happening uh, in Montgomery are so important is to remind people there are women out there that struggle. There is a great need for hope and healing. And Christ calls us to be a part of that hope and that healing by getting involved and, and loving on these folks and donating our time and our effort and our money. And, and so uh, I make no apologies mm. for, you know, getting people out the door and to come to a comedy night when I know that the benefit uh, down the road is monumental. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Shonda, let's talk about what it is that you do. Obviously, you have been given, a, I would say, a multiple array of gifts. God has given you the, the ability to communicate, to tell stories, but to do it in a very creative way, and that is through laughter. And what role do you see such things as humor and laughter playing, especially when someone is going through some very difficult times in their well, lives. Well, you know, I, I didn't make up this concept. I wish I was that smart. <laughs> but even King Solomon said, laughter doeth good like a medicine. It, it has been, it's proven that, you know, scientifically your endorphins start flowing. You you do feel a surge of adrenaline. And and when that happens, your body releases, you know, a, a, a chemical that keeps your mood up and swinging and, and life is easier, easier, you know, the, the, it's what is it? A, a medicine goes down with a spoon of sugar and the same thing with medicine, you know, the medicine of laughter. It, it just helps the day. Well, all that being said, that's a, you know, that's a great thing to be a part of is dishing out that medicine. But after the night is over and the comedy is done, then what do you do? And so comedy becomes a great way of opening your heart and your mind and your spirit 
to listen to a truth perhaps that would be not as easily received, especially when you're going through a dark time or or if you've gotten disgruntled and aggravated at the whole church culture and you and you and you just are get turned off by religion. Well, met the last the gift of comedy is such a great way of of opening your heart to t- to let you hear truth. And um I I've just been honored to be a part of that type of ministry my and you know for the last 25 years and and it works you know it's the same reason when you go to a church service and the pastor always starts your sermon with a little funny story usually about his family you know it's like i do the same thing it's just <laughs> it's just i have a, a big sermon illustration and just a tiny sermon <laughs> shonda pierce here on the intersection her website address is shonda.org Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, and joining me for the Valentine's Day edition of The Meeting House was novelist Jennifer Slattery. She specializes in writing love stories with a Christ-centered focus. She discussed her most recent work, Restoring Love. Now with some insight into that novel, this is Jennifer Slattery. A lot of my writing, my characters, the women, often have regret and shame that the Lord heals them from. And a lot of it is learning to view themselves as Christ sees them. And when we rest fully in grace, when we rest fully in His love, we have nothing to be ashamed of, really nothing to be afraid of when we really understand how deeply He loves us and that absolutely everything He does and allows in our life is because of His great love for us. So through my characters, people can see women really wrestling with some of their deep pain and some of their regrets and insecurities and inner lies. I call them inner lies. We all have an inner lie, which is basically something we believe about ourselves that's completely false and that God is working to replace with truth. So a woman might think, okay, I'm a failure or I'm worthless or I'm easily discarded or unlovable or whatever it is. And those lies, they impact absolutely everything we do if we allow them. But part of developing the mind of Christ, I believe, is to think as he thinks. And yes, that includes how we view sin and how we view the world and how we view others, but it also includes how we see ourselves. And so part of growing into grace is learning to take our thoughts captive and to begin to view ourselves as Christ sees us, holy loved, deeply loved, redeemed, Mm -hmm. adored, cherished. And as you were sharing earlier, you we're talking about characters in your novels that have, well, as we might say, a past. They have inner struggles. Their inner life is is such that they are needing to experience the love of Christ and the redemption of Christ. What did you want to build into this character of Angela as far as what she was struggling with? And, and give us a, a little bit of a taste of what she experienced as she learn more about God's restoring love. Absolutely. So a big part of Angela's regret is she has something in her past that she deeply regrets and that has caused her incredible shame and really caused her to self-destruct prior to encountering Christ. And so here she is, a new believer, and she's still learning, you know, what it means to be a believer. So there's a little bit of comedy involved there. Her dress is not something we would assume people would wear to church and that sort of thing. And she's hiding this part of her past, thinking that if people were to find out 
that they would judge her and nobody would want to really fellowship with her, that sort of thing. And what she comes to learn is God wants to use that very thing to help her to minister to women who are where she was. And so she learns that her greatest regret, her deepest shame can be turned into something beautiful in the hands of Christ and can be used for his glory. What would you say about the dynamics of this particular relationship between these two main characters, Mitch and Angela, that can really provide inspiration for, well, couples here on this Valentine's Day? Well, you know, one one big key element with Mitch and Angela and with my writing in general, as they're drawn together, they recognize that God has a mission for them, and that's reaching out to a single mom who is in the neighborhood, and she is actually married to a career felon who's imprisoned. And so taking from that, you know, when we read in Genesis and God says that it's not good for man to be alone, I will make a helper who is just right for him. And, you know, a lot of times we think about that, okay, our helpmate is to help us become successful or help us be happy, but I don't believe that's God's intention, and I don't believe that's when we truly feel feel fulfilled in our marriage. I believe God's intention was that we help our spouse to fulfill God's mission for them, God's plan for their life. And so as Angela and Mitch begin to come together and really clue into what God might be calling them to do, their relationship is deepened. And I found that with my relationship with my husband. We've been serving together. We're going to celebrate 22 years, actually, this summer. Mm. And we've been serving together since at least 15 years of our marriage. And I have found that has been a key piece of really increasing our intimacy and making us one, as the Bible calls it. Jennifer Slattery here on The Intersection. Her website address is Jennifer Slattery Lives Out Loud. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. Through that website, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered through your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, and recently I had a chance to chat with Jennifer Breeden, an attorney and legal analyst for the Clarion Project, concentrating on the Middle East and human rights issues. In our recent conversation, she discussed her recent visit to certain nations in the Middle East and some of the dynamics of dealing with terrorism in and from that region. Here now is Jennifer Breeden. I had to be re-educated on this um, as well. The Kurdish region was sort of set up after the fall of Saddam. The Kurds were able to kind of have that, that autonomous region within Iraq and, and set that up as a government. So they have a regional government now. Um, in terms of their finances, because they're within Iraq, they technically hold Iraq passports. They, uh, their only source of income is from the Baghdad central government. And that's supposed to be 17%, I believe, of the oil proceeds is to go to them. Over the last few years, you know, the Kurds will have often talked about independence, as they have for many years. Um, the Baghdad central government has stopped giving a lot of those proceeds, and so they're reliant on Baghdad for their income. 
But because they are not a, a state or a sovereign state, they can't go to the UN and ask for humanitarian aid. So while most of the refugees and all of these camps, these UN camps, are in the Kurdish region, whenever money goes to the refugees in Iraq, and that's what it's called, the refugees in Iraq, because Kurdistan is not a state uh, or not a country yet, when, they go to, when the money goes to the refugees there, it either goes straight to the UN and they just give it to the people in their refugee camps and do what they want, or it goes to the Baghdad central government because Baghdad is technically the capital of the Iraqi region. And Baghdad's not even giving the Kurds the 17% of resources they could. So why would they give any of the aid to the Kurds? So the Kurds right now are trying to, to wait. I just actually saw they're trying to um, drill for oil and export that a little bit on their own, but they've just started this process and, and, and make money in any ways, but they're the ones holding the security. And so it's a difficult situation. Um, it's especially difficult because of the political climate. They don't want to, you know, upset all the people they surround, but they are incredibly pro-American, despite the fact that, you know, we haven't been giving them that much aid or support. And they're still protecting over, I think it's about 5 million refugees from different countries at this point, which they're gladly willing to do. When you look at the actual document, the actual order and the the motivation behind it, if you will, what this order is seeking to accomplish from from your standpoint, having been on, well, the other side of things, the other side of the world where the people are being directly affected, perhaps by this. What are you seeing? Well, and from the people there, to be honest, most of the people and of course, these are the people that would be willing to talk to me, a woman, you know, a, a woman that's not Muslim in the Middle East. Um, seeing there, it's a lot of understanding, you know, they get it and they're, they're vetting. Actually, one of the things I, I've talked about, one of the stories I've laughed about is when I was in Iraq, um, I'm in the Erbil airport and that's in the Kurdish region, but I'm there, I'm leaving the Erbil airport and they go to check my bag. And every time I travel to the Middle East, I bring, you know, my Bible and then I bring a copy of the Quran that I have. And so I just bring the two and I just have them there. And, um, and those, those Kurdish forces at the airport, open my suitcase, they look at my Bible, leave it alone, they pull out my Quran and start flipping through it, everything. And I've highlighted, obviously, from my work, you know, Clarion Project, they start flipping through it, turning it upside down, looking for weapons in it or whatever, and going through that. And in my head, in that moment, and I knew, you know, they're not going to find anything, but in my head, I thought, this is amazing, because these are probably Muslim people, or born Muslim, but they live in a secular, you know, governing regional authority. But in the U.S., could you imagine the backlash against the TSA if they were to do that, open bags and look at only Qurans? I mean, and the point is that, that you know, with Trump's um, order and all these things is that these people understand. The people that are fighting it on the front lines, that see it, that know it, regardless of how they were born in their religion, they know the threat. And so they're going to look through the things that constitute the basis of the threat. Well, in the United States, we're being shut up for that. And that's what this temporary order is to do. And you, were, I'm glad that you said that about the words and the actual verbiage used in the executive order, because the words used in it, it doesn't mention Christian, doesn't mention Muslim, but you stated the motivations behind it. It's actually a legal precedent that the court is allowed to look at the motivations behind it. And so when, when Trump's gone on TV and talked about protecting Christians, Christian isn't actually used in the document, neither is Muslim. And the document itself is legal if it was, if the Department of Justice and, you know, Trump's staff was there to provide the facts and, and to state that. And I think that's now coming out as a surprise because it did come out before, um, before his advisors were able to give him all the facts on this and before Jeff Sessions was even confirmed. Um, 
it's something that is, is coming out now that you can't mention Muslims and Christians like that. But the way the executive order is laid out, it just targets countries that have issues with terrorism. And the Iraqis themselves would say, we understand why we're there, at least the ones I talk to. We understand why it's there right now. And um, because, you know, we've had an issue with extremism in Iraq, going from a Sunni Saddam to a Shia Maliki and people being oppressed on both sides. Jennifer Breeden here on The Intersection. Learn more at clarionproject.org. You can find her on Twitter at Jennifer Breeden. That's B-R-E-E-D-O-N. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's J.C. Derrick, Washington Bureau Chief for World Magazine and World News Group. In our conversation, he discussed, based on a recent article he had written for World, some of the notable developments during the first 12 days of the Trump administration. Here now from that discussion is J.C. Derrick. There's so much in the news right now that, that uh, really it, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to follow, like which of these things are actually uh, substantial changes, uh, which are the, you know, what's the biggest news versus uh, what's just causing a lot of noise, you know. Um, these days, it seems like the media is really uh, just uh, magnetized toward uh, controversy, and sometimes controversy breaks out in areas that aren't really the, the biggest, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of news. So um, I, I think the top, I'll give you the top three, and what what I would consider the top three, and number one would be uh, President Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, not a hugely uh, surprising or, or um, uh, you know, controversial move, but yet I think uh, easily it is the most consequential move so far because uh, Gorsuch has, has uh, you know, an impeccable record, uh, all the credentials you need, and really just very little uh, to complain about, uh, certainly from the Republican side and the conservatives, but even from the Democratic side. You know, um, this week, while the, the media was, was focused in on, on the, uh, the, uh, President Trump's criticism of the, the judge who uh, issued a, a, a action against one of his executive orders that he didn't like, he was criticizing the judge. And, and uh, Judge Gorsuch, in meetings with, with Democrats on the Hill, uh, actually said you know, he found that demoralizing. He didn't, he didn't think that was you know, a good idea to be, for, for President Trump to be criticizing a, a, a federal judge. And you know, that's that's going to make him more likely to be confirmed uh, because uh, Democrats are, are looking for, they know they're not going to have a, a liberal on the court, but they're looking for some evidence that he would be, uh, you know, independent. And, and that certainly shows that. So um, it seems highly likely that he will get confirmed. Like I said, not a ton of controversy surrounding him, uh, but, but I think that would certainly be the, the most consequential move so far uh, in, in the Trump, uh, the Trump administration. Uh, number two, you know, I, I, this has slipped by a lot of people, but, uh, pro-lifers trumpeted the return of the Mexico city policy. And a lot of people noted that on Trump's fourth day in office. But what a lot of people missed is that Trump drastically expanded it. Um, the, the Mexico city policy, just as a refresher is something that was put in place by executive order of uh, Ronald Reagan back in 1986, I believe it was. And it, what it did is it prohibited uh, funding to organizations that uh, promote or perform abortions uh, around the world. So specifically uh, an organization like uh, Planned Parenthood International, you know, it, it's, it's going to defund them. Well, what's interesting is that over the years, some conservatives had tried to get that expanded to all family planning funding, uh, 
and uh, across multiple streams of, of, of funding, including for something like PEPFAR, the, the AIDS program in Africa, which is uh, very well funded. And, uh, you know, Congressman Chris Smith told me directly, you know, he said, I, I really, uh, you know, tried for eight years to get President George W. Bush to do this, and he wouldn't. And on Trump's fourth day in office, he did. So what that means is that whereas the previous three Republican administrations had this Mexico City policy, uh, Reagan and both Bush administrations, but uh, it only covered about $600 million worth of funding. What Trump did expanded that so much that it now impacts about $9.5 billion in funding. So exponentially wider reach. And, uh, you know, from a pro-life perspective, you can say, uh, you, you know, uh, many more unborn children will, will be saved because of that policy. Uh, the third third top issue I'd have to say would be uh, obviously the immigration refugee order uh, that I mentioned uh, has, has, you know, there's been an injunction issued. It's currently before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, we'll have to see what happens to that. But uh, when they heard arguments earlier this week, uh, the panel sounded very um, uh, skeptical of, of the, the government's uh, um, arguments. And so we would, uh, I think most people expect the, the, uh, the, the circuit court opinion to be that, um, that, that the, the executive order is unconstitutional, regardless of their ruling though, it seems like, uh, this is probably headed to the Supreme court pretty quickly. So, um, I think those are probably the, the top three, but as you noted in the opening, there, there are just a ton of, uh, of news items right now uh, coming out of the Trump White House. J.C. Derrick here on The Intersection. The World website is worldmag.com. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thank you for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I am Bob Crittenden.